What's up, y'all? Welcome back to Black and Cold, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Michelle, and I am back with a very interesting case for you guys today. So before I jump in, I just have to quickly say a few things. First things first, I have a huge update to make. And if you follow this podcast, Instagram, you will probably already know this. But serial killer Khalil Wheeler Weaver of New Jersey, who I covered on episode five back in March, was sentenced this past Wednesday, and he received a very lengthy 160 years. So that is my very first official update from any of the cases I have covered on this podcast so far, and I am just glad that the victims and their families have received the justice that they deserved. Next thing is my usual spiel. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this show on whatever platform you are listening from. It helps me out. You can also follow us on Instagram at black underscore cold underscore podcast. And lastly, before I stop chatting, just want to give you guys another reminder that I do take case suggestions, which I will leave that link in the description of this episode. So the case I will be discussing today comes out of the state of Indiana, when a smart college student with what seemed like a promising future disappears after sending his sister a very cryptic text message. Now, in this message, he suggested that he was going away. But just a few days later, his body was found in a lake not too far from his campus. This is the mysterious death of Joseph Smedley. Joseph Smedley appeared to have a bright future ahead of him starting at a young age. He had good grades as a child, he was responsible, and not to mention multi-talented. Joseph played soccer as a kid, he played the trombone in the jazz band of his high school, and he also wrestled, making the varsity team in only his sophomore year. During my research, I learned that Joseph's parents actually divorced, and by the time he reached 17, him and his father were just not seeing eye to eye. He was a teenager, he was strong-headed, and according to Cold Case Chronicles that covered his story pretty extensively, his parents' divorce really affected him, and eventually Joseph decided to move in with another family member. And during this time, he remained pretty close to his older sister, Vivian. Joseph was known to be a genuine soul and bring positive energy to everyone. He graduated from Lawrence Central High School in Indianapolis and eventually went on to Indiana University Bloomington, also known as IU. So when Joseph began his college career, he decided to major in biochemistry with a concentration in pre-farm, so he was really smart. And this was no different than any of his other experiences in a classroom. He received all A's and B's his freshman year, which is not always the easiest thing to maintain your first year in college. So as he wrapped up his first year at IU, Joseph decided to rush for the fraternity Sigma Pi. And during his sophomore year in September of 2015, at 20 years old, 
him and a few of his frat brothers were living in an off-campus house together. Now, all in all, everything seemed to be going pretty well for Joseph, and he appeared to have a really close relationship with his frat brothers. He had other friends who spoke highly of him. And from my point of view, he was just having an overall good college experience. It wasn't until September 28th when Joseph's older sister, Vivian, woke up to an unusual text message she received from him at around 4.15 a.m. in the morning. And I'm going to read you guys what the text said. Quote, Viv, I love you. I'm leaving the country by not telling you why I'm keeping you safe and protected. Please don't try to contact me at this number. It won't work. I'll contact you once I'm set up overseas. Thank you for everything, Viv. I love you and I'm sorry. End quote. According to Vivian, she honestly thought her brother was just playing around and kind of laughed it off at first. She responded with an LOL shut up and also reminded Joseph to pay the rent for his previous apartment that he still owed, which was in her name because she was a co-signer for. So he had a pretty important obligation to make on that day. But when Vivian didn't get any response from him after reaching out to him again, that's when she began to get worried. And very quickly, she went ahead and contacted the IU police, which this college has their own police department. And when Vivian reached out, she basically told them like, look, I can't locate my brother. I haven't heard back from him. This is unusual. And she just asked that they pretty much do a welfare check on him at that point. When the IUPD arrived to the off-campus home where Joseph lived, they were told by his roommates that he also left a note for them. And the note stated, quote, had to leave country. Don't try to contact me via cell. It won't work. We'll contact you once set up overseas, end quote. The note was signed Smedley with the date of 928. Now, Joseph went by his last name to his frat brother's so for the note to close like that didn't seem too off. But when Vivian learned of this note and got a chance to look at it herself, she was not convinced her baby brother wrote it. For one, the note was written in kind of like cutoff sentences, like it was very vague. And the grammar was way different than the text message Vivian received. But this note had the same message that allegedly Joseph was trying to get across, and that's where the big problem was. Just like the text to Vivian, this note stated allegedly that Joseph was leaving the country. However, he did not own a passport. Also, he was a college student. The idea of him making such a spontaneous trip wherever it was, was just uncharacteristic. I mean, he already was in the process of paying money back from his old rent, so it just didn't make any sense to his sister. After examining this note left behind, along with Joseph's handwriting, Sergeant Schmuel of the IUPD told the Indiana Daily Student that some of the unique findings in Joseph's handwriting appeared to be in the note. But to be very clear, these were not formal comparisons or, as stated in the actual article, authoritative findings. Now, Tuesday, the very next day, Vivian and her family were contacted by the IU Police Department, and they were told that they've located her brother. The IUPD was said to have been given information that Smedley was in jail in another county. 
Now, Vivian called this jail, obviously, but they told her no one was there by that name. So Vivian then called the IUPD back and was like, my brother's not there. So it seemed to become a little cat and mouse chase for a minute, but eventually the IUPD realized it was just a miscommunication with someone else who was in custody with the same last name. Joseph's loved ones made the drive to Bloomington, and when they arrived to his home, they were surprised to see that all of his belongings were still there in his room. This included his clothes, his laptop, and a phone charger, just to name a few. However, Joseph's actual cell phone was missing. Now, Joseph's roommates, also his frat brothers, said they last saw him sometime between 11 p.m. to midnight on Sunday, September 27th. So just the day before he was reported missing by his sister, his roommates pretty much said they were all home and they saw him right before everyone headed to bed in their separate rooms for the night. For the next few days, loved ones searched all over the Bloomington area for Joseph, but they were getting nowhere. No one reported any sightings of him. There was nothing found to conclude that he purchased any transportation, plane tickets or anything like that. It seems he just pretty much vanished. And this is where I feel like this case has an issue, which is not uncommon for the stories I cover, but it seems many of the students on the IU campus didn't even know Joseph was missing, which is a pattern we see quite often for minorities. But it wasn't until the evening of October 2nd, 2015, when a fisherman made a call to the police after they discovered a body in Griffey Lake which is only minutes away from the IU campus if you're driving, and just about a 35 to 45 minute walk on foot. The body was later confirmed to be Joseph Smedley's. He was found in the shallow water face up. According to a witness that spoke on Cold Case Chronicles, he appeared to have a few bruises and his arms were in a position that looked like he was reaching for something. After his body was discovered, the IUPD began to work with the Bloomington Police Department on Joseph's case. The coroner's office didn't feel like foul play was involved after their first look, and to them, Joseph appeared to have drowned. When notified of what was discovered, not only were his loved ones completely devastated, but they began to raise more questions. Joseph's family says he was a very good swimmer, so again, speculations were at a high. Vivian felt deep down that this was just not it, like this was not it for her. Nothing was making any sense. Details circulating around the 20-year-old's death was very scarce, and it kind of remained that way until December, two months after he was discovered, when the Monroe County coroner officially ruled Joseph's death a suicide by drowning. His loved ones did not agree with this cause of death at all, and they feel there's a lot more to the story than meets the eye. Other than the fact that he was a good swimmer, Joseph never gave any indication to anyone that he was depressed or struggling with anything internally. And this is not to say that people who don't show any signs of depression can't take their own lives because that's always a possibility and it happens. But his sister Vivian, in her heart, just didn't believe this was the case here. And she would have good reasons to believe that after she obtained a copy of the official coroner's report from Joseph's father herself. 
All of my New York listeners, if you are planning any type of event soon and are looking for some of the best balloon and decoration services, Neat Designs is here for you. Neat Designs offers the most gorgeous setups, whether it's for a birthday, baby shower, or just a simple brunch. And y'all, it is black owned. You can see the work that they do on their Instagram at N-E-A-T underscore designs underscore. Joseph and his father did not have a relationship at the time of his death, and he was actually legally emancipated from him when he was a teenager. From the time Joseph decided to leave his father's house and live with another relative, the two never saw each other again after that. And I don't know the extent of the issues, but either way, the next time he would see him, his son would be deceased. The Bloomington PD actually worked closely with Joseph's father and his official coroner's report was not released to the public. But because he was the legal next of kin, Joseph's father, along with his stepmom, were actually the ones to receive this report from Monroe County Coroner's Office. However, when it got in the hands of big sister Vivian, she became vocal about many of the things she read in it. Vivian and her husband spoke out at a student-organized discussion at IU in December of 2015. The discussion was called The Critical Conversation, Joseph Smedley and the Aftermath, where students could come together and share thoughts on racial issues happening within the university, along with Joseph's death. The Indiana Daily student paper actually quoted Vivian from the conversation, and she said, quote, Now that they have ruled it a suicide, I believe it's time for you to know some facts so that you are able to put together your own conclusions, end quote. She then goes on to say that when her brother was found in Griffey Lake, his clothing was still on, including his shoes and socks. He had binoculars around his neck and his backpack was still on. Now, the backpack was actually strapped to his chest, and this is where my jaw drops. It had somewhere between 62 to 66 pounds of rocks in it. And this clearly raised Vivian's suspicions more. Inside the bag, there were also just some school papers, an external hard drive, as well as a charger. And at the time that this was written, Vivian says Joseph's cell phone was not recovered. The water Joseph was discovered in was only about three feet. He was 5'10", according to his sister. So she has a hard time believing her brother drowned or took his own life in water he probably could have kneeled in and still been above the surface. So during the night in question, Joseph and his frat brothers may have been going to Griffey Lake to catch a glimpse of a rare eclipse that night, also known as Blood Moon. And this could explain the binoculars that were found around his neck. Though I couldn't find much detail on this, it wouldn't have been unusual for him to do this that night because Joseph was a science dude. Now me personally, I am not into science in any way, but good old Wikipedia and the Facebook page dedicated to Joseph say the view of Blood Moon would have ended at 11.23 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to be exact. And we know his roommates previously stated they all went to bed at their off-campus home sometime between 11 p.m. and midnight. Eventually, Vivian was able to go through her brother's bank statements and phone records with authorities. And I'm gonna start with the bank statements first, which showed that Joseph's last purchase was at the food spot Noodles & Company, but law enforcement wasn't able to determine an actual time he made the purchase. 
And before I go on to the phone records, I'm just going to point out that this other IDS article states that Joseph's phone was found. And Vivian believes he may have hung out with more people during the time in question. She was able to view that outgoing activity from Joseph's cell phone was from 11 p.m. the night of the 27th through 4 a.m. the early morning of the 28th which was around the same time she received that text message saying he was leaving the country. His outgoing activity also showed Joseph invited some girls to watch the blood moon that evening, and he was even making plans with friends that very same week he was reported missing, which Vivian found to be odd. And just to add in again, remember, Joseph had to make a payment from his prior apartment on that Monday he disappeared, which Vivian stresses he knew was something important that needed to be done for both him and her. Now, in addition to the blood moon timing, there's also a map with a timeline posted on the Justice for Joseph Facebook page. And me not being from Indiana, I am unfamiliar with the area. So I decided to pull out Google Maps to see these locations for myself. And we got to keep in mind that phone pinging is not exact. It just detects the nearest tower. But Vivian told WTHR 13 that the police searched the areas where Joseph's phone pinged around the time she received that text message at 4.15 a.m. And the location was near 7th and Walnut, which is a little under two miles or about a 30-minute walk from Joseph's home, which was on Mitchell Street. So clearly, Joseph was not home or his phone was not at home with him during this time. The next ping shown on this timeline here is at 4.45 a.m. and it shows that Joseph's phone pinged near Griffey Lake, the place where he would have been viewing Blood Moon, and ultimately the place he was discovered deceased. The distance from this lake in the last location 30 minutes ago is a little over three miles, and according to Google Maps, about an hour walk. Lastly, two hours later, per WRTV, At around 6.30 a.m., his phone showed that he may have been in an area near Old State Road 37, which appears to run west of Griffey Lake. Authorities searched this specific location, but they didn't find anything suggesting Joseph was there. Joseph's phone was then shut off after this time. And just to regroup here, because that's a lot to take in, all of this would mean that sometime after his roommates allegedly seen him before everyone went to bed, sometime between 11 p.m. to midnight, Joseph would have left the house if he had his phone on him. Another important thing to note is that he didn't have a vehicle at the time. His car was out of commission. I haven't found any information suggesting he was with anyone else, where they were in a car, or he had a ride, because from what we know, his frat brother said they were all going to bed. So Joseph would have possibly been doing this all on foot if this was the case, And that's a lot of walking. And then with the timings and the miles, that just doesn't really seem to make sense to me. Um, But Vivian decided to get an independent autopsy done. And the pathologist she hired found signs of hemorrhaging in Joseph's back. And they did not deem his death as a suicide. Thinking this could help her brother get some justice, that was short-lived. Because the BPD refused to work with this pathologist that was brought on by her nor would they provide any details to them. Going back to the note that was left behind for Joseph's roommates, his family also had someone analyze the writing in that versus Joseph's handwriting. 
And this expert says that the two don't match one another, and it appeared that they may have been written by two different people, given the complete opposite way of writing, which I mentioned earlier. It appeared to look staged. And another interesting point that came up about this, and I believe it was from one of Joseph's roommates, the note appeared to be written by someone that is left-handed. The words written on the note were at a certain slant or angle, which could be consistent with a lefty. And yes, you know what's going to come next. Joseph was right-handed. And this is not a fact. Clearly, no one knows for sure, but it just raises doubt. And I am a left-handed person myself, so I get it. Our writing does look different in some cases than those of a right-handed person. Not to mention we get ink all over ourselves and smudge it everywhere. But there are many reasons why many people other than Joseph's family are starting to question law enforcement's quick ruling as a suicide. As years went by, Joseph's loved ones continued the fight to finding out what really happened to him that night. His death was treated as a suicide as soon as he was discovered. Vivian feels her brother's case is being ignored when there's so many suspicious circumstances all throughout it. Although many of the inconsistencies around Joseph's death just don't make sense, his case remains closed. The news about Joseph Smedley only really began to spread in 2020 after the death of George Floyd and in hindsight of many of the Black Lives Matter protests. That is five years after he died. Five. And just to go back to an earlier point I made, at the time he was missing, many of the students from IU were not even aware. Many of Joseph's professors weren't even spoken to by authorities after he went missing. And as a true crime fan, off the rip, off the rip, I can name another case from Indiana University that gained national attention immediately, and that was the disappearance of Lauren Spear from 2011. And I'm definitely not saying she doesn't deserve the attention at all, but why are cases like hers treated any different? Students knew Lauren was missing, and her case continues to be one of the more popular ones true crimers talk about. And this could be because she still has not been found after 10 years, but why wasn't Joseph on the radars of many people after Vivian reached out to the IUPD? Now, as I was looking through the internet about this story, reading comments and stuff, I've seen that former students and many people from the state of Indiana alone spoke up about how they never even knew this happened in their own backyard. And this is an ongoing issue that we continue to see and it shouldn't be like that. Everyone should be treated the same. Maybe there's information out there that the public just doesn't know, but in the case of Joseph Smedley, there's so many things to make you question his death. If Joseph went out to see Blood Moon that night with his frat brothers, and he was supposedly going to bed somewhere between 11 p.m. and midnight, something clearly happened after that, and someone has to know. He would have had to leave his home and... Just to play devil's advocate here, say no one heard him leave because all of his roommates are hard sleepers for some reason. Why did he take his binoculars with him to go and take his own life? I mean, even if he had the binoculars with him before while he was seeing Blood Moon, he was home between 11 p.m. and midnight. So why, if he did leave, would he take them with him again? Like, what was he going to use the binoculars for? 
he would have had to walk back to Griffey Lake from his house, which was a troop. He would have then had to find rocks and not a small amount. We're talking about 62 to 66 pounds. He would have then put it in his backpack, which still had papers, a charger, and a hard drive in it. He would have strapped the backpack to his chest, so I guess turn it around, and then submerge himself in the water that was just about three feet. Not to mention, this area is said to be very, very dark at night. Another way to think about it as well is that Blood Moon was said to be over at 11.23 p.m. that night. There's no information out there that I could find with time specifics or details on how the guys were getting around. But if him and his frat brothers stuck around for this whole thing, this could clash with their story that they were all in bed between 11 p.m. and 12. And there was also outgoing activity on his phone from 11 p.m. up until he texted his sister a little after 4. And then the pinging from Joseph's cell phone shows it was in multiple locations all the way up to possibly 6.30 a.m., I mean, I don't know. I personally don't know how this case hasn't continued to be investigated, but that's just my opinion. Joseph Smedley has no criminal history or signs of mental health, according to his loved ones. He was also making plans with people that same week, then inviting girls to see Blood Moon with him. After his toxicology report came back, WTHR 13 reports that it showed Joseph had alcohol and contents of THC in his system. So the last thing I want to touch on that I found to be very chilling is the bio on Joseph's Twitter account. And it says IU undergraduate biochemistry pre-farm. Then under that, it says if found dead in police custody, it wasn't suicide. And then under that, it says, and I don't want peaceful protests. Y'all, just reading this to you guys here, it kind of makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Now, I'm not 100% sure when this bio was put there. The bio could have a message behind it, which many people speculate, or it honestly could just be a coincidence. At the end of the day, Joseph was a young black man from Indiana who may have just been distrusting of the police, like many people. Once Vivian began to share her brother's story on Facebook and social media, a GoFundMe was created to help raise money for her to get an attorney as well as a private investigator to look into Joseph's case. Since the page was created, she has reached her goal and has raised over $10,000. In July of 2020, Vivian spoke with WRTV and claims that the police still continue to hinder the investigation and not release any information to the pathologist she hired. A petition was also created calling on the reopening of Joseph's case. And we have seen this in cases like Alonzo Brooks and Kendrick Johnson. Changes could happen after pressure from the public. And we have seen that sometimes new evidence comes out and new rulings can be determined. Joseph Smedley's petition currently has over 118,000 signatures with the goal of 150,000. I will put that link in the description of this episode in case any of my listeners would like to sign and you feel this case should be reopened. 